This is Eli Lake, and you're listening to The Re-Education. Our topic today is norms, and our guest is the editor and founder of Liberties, the incomparable Leon Weaseltier. While this illegitimate court is on the verge of taking away reproductive rights, I wanted to speak to another horrendous assault on people's rights that is taking place across the country right now. At the same time as states are rushing to pass new abortion restrictions, or are waiting to uphold their anti-abortion trigger laws, legislatures across the country are passing a flurry of anti-LGBTQ bills as well. Just this this year, we've seen the introduction of 238 anti-LGBTQ bills, over half of which target trans individuals. This is genocide! It is. We've seen attacks on the rights of people to use the bathroom, to play sports, and just to openly live as themselves. What you just heard was from a protest in front of Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito's home. Following the leak of a draft decision that would overturn Roe v. Wade, advocates for legal abortion have been assembling before the private homes of six conservative justices. One group, known as Ruth Sent Us, publicized Google Map addresses of the six justices they deemed reactionary. Other activists have disrupted mass in Catholic churches, dressed as characters in The Handmaid's Tale. A group in Wisconsin calling themselves Jane's Revenge attempted to burn down an anti-abortion organization's office. But it it also uh, shows Alito what it feels like to lose your freedom of choice. He cannot leave the house easily, so maybe that's a good lesson for them. Well, and I will say... In the midst of a culture war, like abortion, one will find extremists on both sides. Pro-life activists have murdered abortion doctors, shouted at women outside of abortion clinics. But as the court has moved right, prominent liberals have cheered the fringes. I want to tell you, Gorsuch, I want to tell you, Kavanaugh, you have released the whirlwind, and you will pay the price. That was the current majority leader, of the Senate, Chuck Schumer, two years ago. After those threats were rebuked by Chief Justice John Roberts, Schumer apologized on the floor of the Senate. Nonetheless, there's a sense that the potential for the Supreme Court to revoke a national right to abortion is so menacing that civility and the rules that moderate politics, culture, and discourse are just insufficient. Violating norms in an effort to protect a woman's reproductive rights is not only justified, but necessary. Now I can already hear the objections from my liberal listeners. What about all the norms violated by the right? And they are correct. We also expect losing presidential candidates like Donald Trump to accept the results of free and fair elections. We expect supporters of the losing presidential candidates not to riot in the halls of Congress while it certifies the election. This violated not only norms, but laws, as the prosecutions of the January 6th rioters have demonstrated. But you get no argument from me. Both sides have been norm violators in recent years. And as a result, many of the basic rules and customs that have constrained our political behavior have begun to unravel. In many ways, this isn't entirely new. Before the revolution, Quakers disrupted public meetings in Massachusetts Bay Colony to protest the imprisonment and in some cases killing of their leaders. Abolitionists shamed slave traders in public forums and armed comrades in the Midwest who pressed to outlaw slavery in their own states. Gay rights activists in ACT UP in the 1980s and 1990s 
would shout down public speakers they deemed to be homophobes. In one instance, they placed a giant condom over the private home of Senator Jesse Helms. And in the nation's capital, more gay rights groups are speaking out, this time with a message of safety. A demonstration by members of the AIDS group ACT UP, known for disruptive protests designed to draw attention to the spread of AIDS. But this morning, something most incredible. They unfurled a giant political message for Senator Jesse Helms. The means for the message, a 15-foot giant condom, which engulfed his Washington, D.C. home. The group was protesting Helms' stance against AIDS education. Police were called to the scene, but they didn't arrest anyone. What one thinks of these norm violations depends on what one thinks of the causes that justified them. As Martin Luther King wrote in his famous letter from a Birmingham jail, Nonviolent direct action seeks to create such a crisis and foster such a tension that a community which has constantly refused to negotiate is forced to confront the issue. It seeks so to dramatize the issue so that it can no longer be ignored. Now, we revere Dr. King because he led a movement to disrupt and dismantle the evil norm of segregation and Jim Crow. But not all norms are evil. When congregants from the Westboro Baptist Church disrupted the funerals of soldiers killed in action during the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, a pretty serious norm violation. They did so because its leader, Fred Phelps, believed America had become a den of sin and hated the idea of gay citizens living their lives in the open. And there's another danger with norm violations. They radicalize the other side. Just read Michael Anton's famous essay from 2016, The Flight 93 Election. His argument was that progressives had accumulated so much bureaucratic and cultural power that conservatives had no choice but to support a norm violator like Donald Trump. And when you see these towns and when you see these thugs being thrown into the back of a paddy wagon, you just see them thrown in, rough. I said, please don't be too nice. Like when you guys put somebody in the car and you're protecting their head, you know, the way you put their hand over. Like, don't hit their head and they've just killed somebody, don't hit their head. I said, you can take the hand away, okay? And if you talk to liberals who consider themselves to be a resistance to Trump, they often point to Trump's own norm violations as excuses and justifications for more of their own. So what do we do? Well, there are no easy answers. Part of the burden of living in a free society is that we have to accept the rights of others to be extreme, delusional, and disruptive, so long as their actions do not impinge on us. With that in mind, though, it's also worth remembering that the norms you break to advance a righteous cause will be violated in the future for less righteous reasons, until there is not much of a norm left at all. If you protest at the homes of judges punch Nazis, and demand your adversaries be censored online in the name of reproductive rights. Expected advocates for the unborn will do the same in the future. In other words, choose your norm violations carefully, because once you start, it's hard to stop. Well, I am delighted today to have as our guest the editor and founder of Liberties, a quarterly journal and one of the most illuminating public intellectuals of our era, one of my favorite essayists, Leon Wieseltier. Thank you so much for coming on The Reeducation. Oh, thank you, my friend. That was a very sweet introduction. 
So let's, I, I have the, 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 the theme of today's show is norms. And I wanted to start off by asking a very broad question. What are norms in our kind of political society and why do you believe they are important? Well, they're not laws. Right. They're something different from laws. They, and they are less uh, rigorous than laws but more rigorous than manners, let's say. They are the unsaid rules according to which members in a society or a community expect each other to behave. That's obviously a very fluid and, and, and imprecise definition, but norms, I think, are fluid and imprecise sometimes, in fact, quite often. Now, in an open society, why are norms particularly important in terms of how we engage in politics and self-rule? Well, in an open society, we tell ourselves what to do. Other people don't tell us what to do. So norms cannot be communicated with papal or monarchical authority. And even though people in open societies believe in norms that for them are absolute, we are not an absolutist system. So, so I think that open societies pose, they confer an extraordinary intellectual burden on ordinary people because in part because we we govern ourselves by polling ourselves every two and every four years. We call them elections, these polls. And so and which means we govern ourselves by our opinions. We count them. And between those elections, when we're not counting opinions, we are debating them and fighting over them and so on, which means that Every citizen in an open society must have some standard for the quality of his or her opinion. An opinion is not, it may not be a worldview or a full-fledged philosophy, but it can't just be a prejudice or a mood or a feeling or, which is for me the problem with populism. So there is a certain degree of reflection that is required of ordinary people in a democracy, in an open society. And it's a big burden. There's no question about it. And in open societies, a lot of citizens in those societies try to escape that burden. And they prefer to simply accept the norms that are dictated to them as usually as a package that adds up perfectly by communal institutions, religious institutions, ideological institutions, cultural institutions, and so on. But I think that the, the important point is that citizens of a democracy have to think. That's the upside and the downside of democracy, if you will. So along those lines, would you agree that in the last six or so years, we have begun to see an unraveling of norms particularly in the political space? Yes, obviously. But it's important to understand, to have a context for what we mean by unraveling. Yes. When we say that norms have unraveled, what we must not 
be implicitly contrasting that to is some Rousseauian state of perfect unanimity and consensus uh, of opinion or of norms, because in fact, our system, the founders of our system, understood that that conflict is an inalienable and inevitable feature of human affairs. And so they built a system that didn't aspire to perfect agreement. That's the Rousseauist idea, the general right. will. There is no such thing as the general will. And in the absence of the general will, we have a system of, of discussion and compromise. And so the first thing I would say is that people who are nostalgic for a time when we there was a, 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 a unanimity of norms are daydreaming. They're daydreaming. Secondly, That's a big point, yeah. Secondly, I think we are living, there are times when you have a great historian once referred to the plastic hours of history, not plastic as in cups, but plastic as in change and malleability. And we are living at a time when a great many norms coexist and don't add up about family life, about erotic life, about politics, and we're, what we're experiencing now, I think, is a very, very sharp contest between norms. So, and you know, the thing about norms is, again, Congress doesn't vote on norms, and the president cannot issue norms by executive order. Right. Norms tend to come from the bottom up, not from the top down. And so... Once a, a very substantial number of people have b grown accustomed to living a certain way, then we think of that as the norm in their right. community. It's, it's an empirical thing and it's a de facto thing. And so, but we have in our country very large communities of people who live very differently from each other very differently from each other. And the challenge is to find not a national consensus, but enough overlapping to allow for social peace. That really is how, how I see the problem. But, but you when, you have, when you have, for example, the obvious one is the losing presidential candidate not accepting the results of an election and spreading ridiculous conspiracy theories about the election right. that's uh, and millions of Americans believing it. That is an erosion of a norm from one side. And then I think it does. I mean, if you talk to the people about January 6th who believe that they will then t tell you about 2016 and the Steele dossier. And if you talk to the people about, you know, if you talk to elite Democrats and they'll talk to you about January 6th and we're seeing it now, with the decision on Roe v. Wade, abortion, draft, sure. an abortion, where we're seeing a certain norms that, you know, you don't go in front of private homes and harangue justices because we expect justices to make decisions on fact and law and not. Well, I think you do that. I, I don't understand okay. the great outrage about that. Huh. I really don't. I mean, these nine people have an extraordinary amount of unaccountable power, whatever you think about their view. Okay. And if they were going to affirm Roe, I would understand why demonstrators were annoying 
you know, Sotomayor or or Kagan where they live. I I, I don't understand the outrage about that. There's a well, I think I, I I do understand the outrage. No, but, I think that I mean, I'm talk, uh, and the leak was a, was a norm violation. The leak was a norm violation. Look, I think that there are, in the first place, the attempt to overturn the results of the election was not just a violation of norms. It was also a violation of constitutionally mandated practice and of law. And the attempt to, to, to the violent attack on the Capitol was not just a violation of norms. It was a violation of law. And I think that there are, we can make a distinction between in, in, in the great maelstrom of norms that is the United States right now, there are norms with which I don't agree. And then there are norms with which I think we all have to agree are rotten. In other words, I don't, I happen to be pro-choice, but I don't, would never say about people who are pro-life that they are, that they are rotten or poisonous or, or they, that they believe what they believe with the integrity of their beliefs. But when it comes to someone like Trump, who is simply exploiting the openness of our society for cynical self-interest, so as to violate the Constitution, that seems to me a different order of, 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 of deviance. The people well, I wasn't trying to equate them with deviance. I, was, I wasn't trying to necessarily equate these things, but what I was trying to do is to show that one side's norm violations often become the fodder or the justification for the others. Oh, yeah. Look, we're playing a terrible kind of seesaw here. Yes. I just wrote about this. I mean, we now live, it seems, in a permanent, in a permanent political culture of repeal so that nothing is ever settled, no precedents are ever agreed upon, and as soon as the other party gets in, they set about undoing what the party that preceded them had done. And I don't know where this is going to end. I really don't. I think that, yeah, I don't know where this is going to end. I think that I have no problem, no problem at all, in fact, with political hardball. My criticism of the Democrats is actually that they don't know how to play it. That, you know, when, when Mitch McConnell refused to give Merrick a hearing, which I thought was outrageous, and then when he found a way to rush... Amy Barrett onto the court in 10 minutes, which I thought also was outrageous. He didn't break any laws. He was playing political hardball. And I have Leon, Leon, I mean, to, to, if you widen the aperture, I think there's a famous speech from McConnell in which a part of the filibuster for judicial nominees was repealed by Harry Reid. And he said at the time, yeah. When we get our power, I mean, I'm paraphrasing when, right. you know, when Republicans in the majority, you will reap the war room because we'll play by the same rules. Right. And that is an example of this phenomenon of, you right. know, you push a little bit, you, you change the rule a little bit on your side. And when then we do it on our side and it kind of becomes this cycle of norm violation, so to speak. Well, but I look, I mean, democratic politics is not a tea party. It is a tea party. It's not a, it's not a garden party. 
if you look at if you look at the history of our democratic politics and some of the some of the shenanigans of the 19th century we have never been especially civil in our politics i'm not one of those people who think that polarization is the worst problem we face i think that we're sure. built for polarization i think over politicization of the entirety of american life is the worst problem we face and that what we call polarization is a consequence of that but i think that the stakes in politics are very very high and if people decide to play rough that's fine they can't break the law they can offend me and i can offend them so i'm not i kind of want I, you know, I, I, I'm not in, in mourning for a halcyon age of, you know, you, you know, of, 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 of Socratic discussion and so on. And I think I should also say that, that the, the, the wars that we're talking about now, the political wars, the truth is that if you talk about them as norms, they're playing out not only in the realm of politics, but also in the realm of culture. Of course. And culture is more powerful than politics because you can't change culture with an election or with the bill before the House or even with the ruling of the Supreme Court. Well, but to take to take your an example you mentioned earlier, that if, if, if the court had upheld or maybe it still will Roe v. Wade and there were demonstrations in front of Sotomayor and Kagan's house, I doubt very much that you would see the lax attitude among, you know, at least many cultural political elites that you do to the protesting in front of the private homes of the conservative justice. Oh, look, hold on. Let's, yeah, I mean, let's not get into the subject of double standards. We Fair are, enough. Fair, but, but I do think it's, re it's relevant because a norm is powerful, or the, a norm is strengthened when everybody agrees to that this limitation, you know, to play by the, that common rule. A norm is not supposed to be, you know, only for my side. A norm is supposed to be for everyone. Right. That's, but, if, right. but if I believed, I'm sounding a little perverse here, and I'm sure I'll get into yeah. trouble for this, but if I believed that abortion was murder, which I do not up to a certain point, then as long as I am not, as long as I'm keeping some distance, right, various homes that, Etc. I mean, I would, I, I would, I could, I could see myself being out there. I mean, I have in my in my youth, not recently, also done disruptive things when I believed in political causes when the stakes seemed a matter of life and death. I, and you know, and they're going to go away, and you know, they really are. And well, by the way, this this gets. Because yeah, we're such an Alito and Barrett and Ra and everybody who sits on the Supreme Court is a member of the elite. I mean, it's it's of not what to do with elites. Well, no, I I know I'm, I wasn't talking about. Together. I was I was talking more about you know the most national media. I was talking. I was thinking about political leadership. But I wanted. But you you got to something that I that is a good transition. This is the other part of this is why it's it's an interesting and important question, which is. It is. Nobody should ever take the view that there's never a time in which norm should should be should not be violated because 
In fact, the country, our country, has a rich tradition of norm violators, whether they were abolitionists or... Well, I I might say it, a rich tradition of evil norms. And a rich tradition of evil norms, exactly. So that's the hard part of this, which is that is... So it's the problem that I think some of the people on the choice side have overstated the implications of this draft decision, saying it, you know, will will lead to revoking the right to, you know, interracial marriage or to contraception, which I which I don't think that this decision would would say. And that this creates a sense uh, that the stakes are too high to resort to civility and to follow these these customs. And and I think that you could argue that the same thing kind of happens, even though I agree with you that laws were violated in the case of the January 6th riots and laws were violated in the effort to prevent the House from certifying the election or the Congress from certifying the election. But they're fueled, these, these, these sorts of extreme behaviors are fueled by a kind of perception of reality that is too extreme and, 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 and drives you to sort of more extreme act. Well, now you're getting to an important point, which is yeah. the, the prestige of extremism in American political life. Yes. There was always extremism in American political life, but we never conferred upon it the media prestige and the cultural prestige that we now do. And I'm talking about the progressives as well as the right wing, as the reactionaries. There is a new glamour in anger. There is a new glamour in viciousness. The technology certainly bets this. You know, it's, but as I say, there always was an apocalyptic strain in American political life, but it wasn't mainstreamed and it wasn't as widely admired as it is now. Now we live in it. We live in a time in which the truth of a proposition is determined for people by how intensely you believe in it. So that if you're apocalyptically out of your mind about it, it must be true. Mm -hmm. When in fact, the intensity of a belief in something tells you nothing about the truth of what you believe. And we see this all the time because in the history, say, of religions, we know and respect the courage of martyrs who sacrifice their lives for things that we may think are perfect nonsense. Right. There is no no correlation between the extremity of one's belief and its merit, none. But we have now chosen, partly stoked by the media, stoked by Twitter, stoked by the general acceleration of life Mm. in which everybody is rushed. Everybody has been intensified in, in, in some deep way. We are, we are now living in a time in which radicalism is becoming a kind of norm, which is a paradox, right? Which is a paradox. But, you know, Trump did a lot to mainstream what we now call the alt-right. We used to call the radical right. We used to call the new right. We used to call the John Birch Society. We, this stuff was always out there. This stuff was always right. out there, but it wasn't mainstream. It didn't, it, and it wasn't tolerated as 
as as as an intellectually and morally respectable part of the political discussion and that's changed and we have to we have to learn we have to calm down before we do anything we have to calm down that's the thing that worries me the most is that i mean i don't think the apocalypse is coming but you don't need the apocalypse to have apocalyptics you really don't well this gets to the you know my kind of my first set of questions which is that w- there are there is some there are special there's a special status of norms when it comes to politics in a free society and you talked about that but part of it is as you said that if you if you just if you allow yourself to become kind of you know to 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 become enraptured by a, a kind of unreality that would then lead you to take extreme action right that there's an undermining of of the democratic process just in that well but what you just said which is true yeah and we all know this and nobody quite knows what to do about it is that the democratic process requires that we share a basic picture of reality we yeah. disagree in our interpretations of it but we can't have this camp, you know, we can't have the shark saying that two plus two is four and the jet saying that two plus two is five. We can't right. have that, which is where we are now. And people have talked about our epistemological crisis and alternative facts and so on. And it is, it is a real problem in part because of the new technology, which proliferates lies and establishes a tradition of lies in nanoseconds, in nanoseconds. So I think, yes, I don't have a, I, and that's not norms, that is knowledge. Sure. That is knowledge. That is something that is more bedrock than norms. But there is an element of norms involved, which is to say that well, if I put in what we, yeah. what we consider to be knowledge, in other words, there are norms about what are our criteria for calling something true. And it would, you know, they have to do with evidence. They have to do with experiment. They have to do with, you know, scholarship. They have to do, I mean, there are, there are tests for the validity of factual propositions. But, but what I was getting at is that, you know, a functioning Republic such as ours has avenues that can absorb changing attitudes, that we have ways in which you can affect change. You have to- Absolutely. Okay, but when you violate basic kind of rules of civic discourse and you, you know, decide, you know, I don't want to harp on pressuring Supreme Court judges, you decide that you're, you're not going to accept the results of elections and things like that, that, undermines a whole lot of things and they can be big and small but there's these like for example in in our profession of journalism something changed in the last few years where it was quite possible to continually print kind of anonymous speculation about pending prosecutions of one's political enemies particularly I'm thinking of you know republicans mainly that before would not have passed muster in any of you know your sort of normal mainstream newsrooms. 
Whereas we see this now as, you know, kind of getting all of that auction. Well, I mean, I argue that's a smaller right norm. Here. I mean, it's gotten worse, but you're idealizing it, I think, a little bit. You know, if you take the history of the New York Times on some of the biggest stories of the 20th century, you know, the, 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 the results were mixed. Uh, well, I, I'm not talking about accurate versus inaccurate. I'm talking about a very specific norm, which is that if you are told anonymously that there is a kind of investigation into someone and then it's been an, a year and you haven't seen any prosecution or charges, that there would be at least some sort of walk back or something or that there would, you know, it, it would be very, very, you know, you would you'd have better sourcing. You wouldn't just sort of come out with that. And we've seen all kinds of stories with regards to that that never ended up resulting in any kind of actual yes, prosecution. Yes, I understand. I understand. I mean, and as when I was coming up as a journalist, I, you know, those stories would have would have been go back and either get someone on the record or something like that. Now, obviously, you know, it's on a hard and fast rule, but I'm, I'm talking about things like like that. And that all, there are all these little things that I and I'm, I'm fascinated because on the one hand, I think we've described and you have described eloquently a real crisis for our country at the moment that you have lots of people who are not agreeing on basic reality, and that can lead to the need for extreme action. Well, on the other hand, this way, Eli, I don't mean yeah. to interrupt you, but think yeah. about this way. Maybe what we need to stipulate to say is that you can't, that norms don't work without a sense of limits. Right. That, that and what's been lacking in our political life has been a sense of limits. So that you remember, you know, the, the, that's what that's what Joe Welch said when he turned to McCarthy and said, have you no decency, sir? Right. What he meant was, how can you go this far? In other words, that, that there is no I think it's the idea we need to we need to recover the idea that whatever it is that we believe, however, absolutely, we believe it, even if, if we believe that that God told it to Moses, who and that's why we believe it, or because the Holy Father in the Vatican thinks so, and that's why we believe it, or whatever. In an open society, we have to act with a sense of limits. The only thing that we're entitled to is a hearing. We're not entitled to an outcome. We're yes. entitled to a hearing. If there is a sense that we are not that one's view is not being given a hearing. And there's been grievances of this kind, most of which I think have been actually crazy. Everything from some of the, the Trumpist claims to, if I read the sentence one more time that we need to have a conversation about, <laughs> I mean, that's the only conversation we've been having. Uh, right. So, I mean, the, but people now, so everyone, everyone is entitled to a hearing. And the nice thing about the, in, the internet, about the new technology, is that as long as medium exists, nobody is ever going to be censored again. <clears throat> because sure. if you have something to say, you just put it on there. Right. And now, at, but we're not entitled to popularity, and we're not entitled to political success, and we're not entitled to p political happiness. Right. We're not entitled to that. And we and and when I say that, I you know, I'm going to write about this, I assume, because it's been bugging me. Americans, in, in a funny sort of way, Americans no longer have a, have the patience for long term struggles. 
they see problems and they want to fix them. Right. And they, they really want to fix them. And then they want to do what Americans do best, which is move on. Yeah. And the truth is in many of the, in our politics, in our culture, in many of the questions that most, that most excruciate us, this is a question of a long struggle. It won't be decided by the 22 election or the 24 election. So, and we have to get accustomed to that. You know, the, the one American community that knows net has a natural understanding of long struggles is of course the African American community. And, but even in the African American community for perfectly understandable reasons, people lose patience. And when it's a question of rights, you know, the, the, the idea that patience is required for the violation of someone's rights is silly. Sure. What matters is the interpretation of, you know, whether or not that interpretation is correct. But, but there is some way in which I think we need to calm down before we, dis- before we continue our discussion, as it were. It's not right. going to happen. And we need to accept a sense of limits. We have to have a treaty about limits. And we have to, each of us decide that, you know, the world is not here to gratify us. That that's not what, that that's not what this is about. Or to put it another way, as you said, it is that we have to appreciate that we are a large country that contains multitudes. And that there will be communities in our country that live by rules and norms that you abhor and your right to live in your community is contingent on their right to live in theirs. Uh, No question about it. And to a certain extent, that's the first, that's a norm that we can't break. We have to accept. No, however, however, let's complicate it and make that very edifying sort of little uncomfortable and add that tolerance, which is what we believe in, one way right. to think of tolerance is as legitimating a new set of norms within our larger, many normed community. Right. That's what tolerance is. Because before tolerance, in an intolerant society, you can talk about a single set of norms. Now, the single set of norms never apply to everybody, but that's why in, in an intolerant society, there are people who do not get to live and speak the way they wish to live and speak. But in a tolerant society, when you welcome as a matter of right, a, new, a, a, a hitherto unrecognized or untolerated community into our society, what you are doing is throwing some new norms into the mix. Sure. Now, there may be meta overlapping norms. I mean, that, you know, the, you know, the communities have the communities that seem to differ also have a lot of things in common and we've got to identify those, but it, it really is an interesting paradox, you know, I mean, yeah. So that, you know, that, that more tolerance in some ways requires less tolerance for the old ways that were intolerant. More tolerant, it requires less tolerance for the fantasy of unanimity. Sure. It requires more patience with cacophony. Yes. 
It really does. Harmony is not the ideal. The reality is cacophonous. And we have to understand that that is an ineradicable feature of an open society. That, you know, we proudly live in a society that we share with people we despise. Yes. And that's, and, and, and bullied for us. And so, yeah, I think that, so, and, and, and and more importantly, the survival of what I believe is true or what I believe is important and what I believe is right is, does not depend on you ever agreeing with me or others ever agreeing with me. Right, right, right. right. You can, I have to respect you. I don't have to respect your belief in the sense that I can argue against your belief till I'm blue in the face. Yes, but I have to respect you and I cannot ever abridge your right to express your belief. So my view is, you know, respect the believer and argue with the belief because all our beliefs can't be right and they all don't go together. And the stakes sometimes are very high, which is why the debates get virulent, which is why they get rough uh, and why we have to be prepared for them to get rough. So with that, with that in mind, and I'll end on this provocation, hasn't the draft of Alito's decision in some ways affirmed this idea that there is not going to be one universal norm when it, or, or law when it comes to abortion? I think some, some states will, will, will be very re- restrictive and other states won't. And the, it, there's no mention of it in the Constitution. And to leave it to the states is in fact and kind of coheres with this idea that this is what we have to do when we're living in a democratic society is, you know, have this this sort of paradoxical notion of norms that accepts that, that other people will live under different rules. I think that's right. I think, look, the more things get thrown back into the states, the more of a federalist reality you were going to be. Right. And yes, I think that if, in fact, they overturn Roe, <laughs> which however we, the decision it was, strikes me as a colossal social error. But if they overturn Roe, yes, we're going to be, have a very modeled map about, about this. Now, the one thing I would say is that there are, the question is, and this is what they disagree with, but this has been what the debate in abortion, I think has been about, is does does the practice of is the practice of abortion validated by some sort of universal or general right? Right? right. Now, if it is, if there is a right to abortion, then there is the very pressing question of whether rights shouldn't be certified at the national level. In other words, I, you can take the example of civil rights, of voting rights, right? Mm-hmm. I, if we agree that those are rights, and uh, thank God I don't hear anyone saying that they aren't right the way they say about abortion, but if we agree that they're rights, then it makes sense to me that they can be ratified at at at, at you know nationally at the federal level. I, well, if, I, I, yes, as as always. I mean, the, the, right. So right. So 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 people who argue so people who argue that abortion is a right will, you know, will not understand, will not agree, they'll understand, will not agree why it has to go back into the states. But if it does go back to the states, I agree with you, we are going to be living 
in a multiplicity of norms about reproductive rights. There's no question about that. There's no question about that. Look, we have, how should I put this? Every, even a country as large as ours governs itself, not just from the top down, but from the bottom up. Of course. There are local cultures and customs and practices. And people who live in New York don't live the way people who live in Fayetteville do. And that's just the way it is. Now, you can't have customs that break the law, right? I mean, you can't practice child sacrifice or polygamy or polyandry or anything like that. But, you know, our responsibility is to do as much as we can to recognize and to allow the flourishing of local cultures, except when they collide with rights, except when they collide with rights. And I think that that's the frame, that's the framework within which I see internal American tolerance, internal American tolerance. You know, there are things that can be said about gay rights in this regard, I mean, I thought that Anthony Kennedy's opinion was gorgeous in Obergefell because if you read the beginning of it, he started with a universal liberal philosophy of equality for all. Right. I mean, period. Period. He didn't, he wasn't writing just about gay people. He's writing about all people. And that was beautiful. On the other hand, I wouldn't be as confident as you are that the, the, that the, that the, repeal of Roe by the court will not tempt them into other areas of personal life and sexual morality. If you look, there's a a famous and and unfortunately a little prophetic dissent that Scalia had in a case called Lawrence, which was a famous gay rights Mm -hmm. case many years ago in which the court ruled for gay rights. And Scalia wrote that this is a slippery slope I forget to what he said, masturbation, adultery, bestiality. I mean, it was a completely, almost comically hysterical sentence. But once people feel that they have the power to go into the bedroom, there could be trouble. There really could be trouble. Because well, gets- I, I would, if I could, in my defense, the reason I'm less worried about that, and I say this as somebody who is sort of generally pro-choice with reservations about anything in the third trimester. But I would say that you have a marriage of a political movement of largely evangelical Christians and 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 a sort of pious Americans who are horrified by abortion and have a lot of questions about the sort of sexual morality questions linked up with a legal community who believe in originalism. And those are not the same thing. And there's a very strong argument right. against Roe on purely constitutional grounds that at one point even Ruth Bader Ginsburg agreed to and plenty of other liberal well, tourists. That, I think that's right. I mean, nobody... Whereas, whereas there, I think Oberfell is really grounded in much, is much firmer footing within the Constitution. And Kennedy, you know, his, one of his clerks was Brett Kavanaugh. And we have... And there's there's plenty of good reasons to think that Kavanaugh, you know, largely agreed with the reasoning on that. And that would be the fifth vote on that from that perspective. I'm not saying that you don't have 
you know, that's, we know that Scalia, you know, and you mentioned the dissent in Lawrence and, you know, I, neither one of us are lawyers here, but I do think that the originalism is what ties the five justices on the conservative side of the court together more so than what has really been a kind of caricature that we've heard from the choice activists or the pro-abortion activists that say that they're they're motivated by a, a kind of religious fundamentalism. Well, I think that, that look, that's certain. That's it's certainly true. It's certainly empirically the case that not everybody who is against Roe is a religious fanatic. That's certainly true. I do think that. I mean, again, we're not lawyers. I I have I would I say two things. The first thing is that I have no. It baffles me to hear that abortion is not in the Constitution because neither is the Internet and neither is. I mean, it just baffles me. I don't understand. No, but the, the, right, that, the, 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 the part of the Constitution that would that would I mean, I, I just don't think that there's... we interpret. We are fair enough. Laws are our exercises of in constitutional interpretation. And the only reason our Constitution has survived is because things that were not in it came to be inferred from it by means of public and easily disputable reasoning. And so I, I'm not, I don't understand that sentence. I really don't. But the, 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 what worries me, the reason I said what I said about the Scalia dissent is that right now, by the way, on the left too, not just on the right, our politics, or how shall I put it, are sex addicted. Mm. I mean, we, we, our politics, such a large proportion of our public conversation about politics and society are about sex mm -hmm. um, and how it should be conducted and between whom and what happens if it has certain outcomes and how do you interpret it and we are as as you know we our politics are sex addicted and in a climate and there is there are there are currents of puritanism on both sides of real puritanism Yes. And and this is very troubling, which is why I say that in this climate, in the climate of this political culture, and knowing what we know about some of these conservative justices, I would I will not be surprised if the strategy becomes on the right to find a way to get cases dealing with other aspects of sexual life onto the docket of the court. I, I really will not be surprised by that. It may not happen, and they've been clear. They all say this is just about abortion, and textually, or as they like to say, facially, it is just about abortion. But I would not be completely surprised if if things rolled further along in this way. But also, as you said in the beginning, and I agree with this, the culture precedes politics. And culturally, we have moved light years in the last 50 years, which is to say 94% of Americans have no problem with any interracial marriage. Oh, I agree. Contraception is no longer yes. controversial. And gay rights are widely accepted, even on the right at this point. Yes, but, and well, you have to, but that's the yes. point. There's yeah. no way to understand the age of reaction in which we're living now except as a response to the extraordinary moral and social progress that we made in the United States 
in but is, I'm is, saying is, is that a response because a very short time. But I'm sorry, is that a response though to the progress? Because those are attitudes that I think have great kind of consensus purchase, or at least well, the large majority. Whereas the abortion issue continues to divide us. Yeah, that yeah. there's still it's still there isn't a consensus on that. So that's where I think there's a difference. Well, I think that the consensus about other moral questions is not as deep as you portray it. Um, okay, the activism against it is also not as deep as it is on the abortion question. On okay. the day that Obergefell, the ruling was handed down, my son, who was a teenager saw that the White House that evening was lit up in the colors of the rainbow. And he said, let's go down to the White House and celebrate. And we did. And we went there and we cheered and we hugged all kinds of nice gay strangers. And it was a beautiful evening. On the way back, I remember telling him, warning him. And I I said to him, look, you have to understand that you've just witnessed a a historic stride. Right. The moral progress of American society but this is still the United States and nobody is going to tell 320 million Americans that men can now marry men and women can now marry women without there being a reaction, without there being a reaction. And there was a reaction. There was a, now it's a good fight. It's a good fight and progress is never linear and it's never irreversible. It's a, you know, it zigzags. It's a sure. good fight. But one, you know, the, the panic that one sees on the right about moral questions, and in some cases, e- even in very sophisticated intellectuals, when you read them, it's raw panic. It's sort of like they're stealing my country. I don't feel the ground, you know, solid uh, under my feet anymore. I mean, there is real panic. That panic is a kind of, backhanded tribute to the amount of moral progress that we've made in this country. We are a more tolerant and more decent society than we were 50 years ago. And 50 years is not a long time, especially in the history of prejudice, which is, which is ageless. So, but that's why I'm worried about the passions unleashed and maybe what's coming against, you know, I, I targeting individual justice at the Supreme Court from either side. Yeah, but, but he, like, it, it weakens the legitimacy of an institution. Their houses. What? Nobody is targeting them. They have yes, no, 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 they are. Warning, their driver and the F, they pick them up. The Secret Service takes care of them. Nobody's targeting anybody. And it's going to go away. That That's not really the issue that's not, okay well you all right i don't want to i don't want to harp on that but there is the the rhetoric has been white hot there has yeah. been discussion among democrats of packing the court which is an insane idea there's all kinds of things like this that and there is always this talk under trump we had these conversations about getting rid of the electoral college and i'm saying that there there is there has been a kind of turn to a sense that i'm losing this is the end. It's an existential threat. And we have to change the rules because, you know, these people are worse and they'll do it, you know, to us. I think that do you see this on both sides. Yeah, I I think that the idea of packing the court is no more outrageous, given the fact that the Constitution also doesn't say nine is Um, more out. Well, again, but we're talking about what's 
but I will let me finish. But the, yeah. uh, it's no more out. The idea of packing the court is no more outrageous than the idea of denying Merrick Garland a hearing in February because there's an election in November. That, that, that was just as outrageous. Okay. Just as outrageous. And you're right. Everybody or the Republicans are playing it with a good conscience. They play rough. The Democrats sometimes play rough. When they do, it's with a bad conscience. And often they don't play rough. And we are now in a, in a period, and we've had other periods like this in our history. This is yeah. not new. This is oh, that's certainly new. true. But you used right. the word passions before. And that is, I think, the key here, which is, and I'll go back to an earlier point, we need to shrink the prestige of passions in our society. Right. Passions are not that wonderful, except maybe in personal life, though a lot of people get hurt by them in personal life, too. Our our political system was designed so that interests and and principles could master passions. Passions were things that all our great teachers in all our religions and in all our secular democratic traditions tell us need to be mastered not unleashed and celebrated and given microphones and night and nighttime TV shows. In your view, in your view, you know, revere Frederick Douglass, but not John Brown. I think John Brown was a terrorist. I think. But a righteous terrorist. All terrorists are righteous. No, no, yes. no, no. The not all terrorists are righteous. The, 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 what's his name? Eric, what's his name? Who killed because of abortion? He was righteous. He thought God was on his side. No, no, no. I'm not talking about whether they think they're righteous. I'm saying we know in the judgment of history that John Brown, when he I don't tried to raid the ark, a righteous terrorist. You don't, why? you don't belong. Why not? He killed was fighting against slavery. In, in, it's an awful institution. He killed innocent people. What was it in Apawatomi or whatever it was? He killed innocent. Look, you know, one of my, my test for myself has always been. It's funny you mentioned John Brown. All my life. I have yeah. asked myself the question. Well, by the way, I said Revere Douglas and not Brown, which I agree. Certainly, but one of the yeah. reasons Revere Douglas is because Douglas was a work in progress. Douglas, mm-hmm. if you read Frederick Douglass carefully and you read his biography, Douglas was a man who lived politically in the sense that he understood the nature of politics. He was but but what I wanted to say was, you know, all my life my test for myself was that if I were alive in 1850 in America, would I be a radical abolitionist or a moderate abolitionist? I flatter myself that I would be an abolitionist. Mm-hmm. And I've known the whole time that I would have been a moderate abolitionist because I would have thought that John Brown had no right to kill those innocent people. And I would have thought that President Lincoln is right to preserve the Union which was not at all obvious at that time. Sure. And slavery is an absolute evil, an absolute evil. It's hard to think of another evil that would more justify the total disruption of a society than slavery. Yeah, it really is. And yet, and yet, I'm pretty sure I would have been a moderate abolitionist because we never live by only one value alone, ever. That's a part of our, you know, the multiplicity of norms that we have sure. in our society. We also have in each one of us. We haven't talked about the diversity of norms in our own hearts. 
or an arterial also, of course, yeah. And sometimes they clash. Often they clash. Yes. So, no, I think that people who believe in absolutes in an open society have got to understand that their absolutism cannot extend to other people and to our institutions. They have a problem. I have always told my liberal friends, my secular friends, that they have to understand that in our open society, the believers are the ones who are perplexed and baffled and hurt because they do not understand why, if they hold the word of God in their hand, if they know what is absolutely true, why they cannot bring it into Congress and say that this is why we should vote for X or, or against Y. And, right. and the believers are the ones who are being asked to constrain themselves. I mean, they get benefits for it. I mean, the, you know, they get this thing called freedom of religion, which is unprecedented in human history as we practice it here. Correct. Right. Yeah. I, but I think that we need, people need to have, people need to practice self-mastery in some way. In other words, you know, politics does not justify lunacy. It really right. doesn't. It just doesn't. And in our society right now, we think that political lunacy is a justified kind of lunacy. Right. And, and that, right. And that, that, and that, unless you are that, I you, you said it so brilliantly earlier that the, the intensity of your belief is somehow the measure of its truth. Yeah, it's, it's not true. Right. It's truth. You know, That's, I mean, it's, it's crazy. It's, you know, if you look at, even in the realm, in the realm of art, you look at, the incredible beauty of ancient Egyptian art or ancient Chinese art or ancient Hellenistic art. I mean, the stuff based on the mythology. And you think to yourself, all this incredible beauty we possess because these ancient people believed in total nonsense. <laughs> they built this gorgeous replica of a boat, a golden, a gilded wooden boat because they thought that the dead pharaoh needs to sail it up the Nile now, right? Yes. Total nonsense. And we are the beneficiary of it, right? So right. truth, you know, the truth, the fact that, and that, that, that somebody believes intensely in something doesn't count for a point for me. Not one point. Right. Not one point. I need them to give me reasons, to persuade me. Right. Because we right. used to be in the business of persuasion. Now we're in the business of throwing positions at each other, which and is cancel and cancellation. Yeah. Right. But right. to persuade me, they're going to have to give me reasons that I can also accept, which means they can't tell me that I should believe something because they feel strongly about it if I don't share their feeling. And they can't tell me that I should agree with their view of something. Because God told them this, because God didn't tell me this, and so on. We have to find reasons that we can all share. One, but of on the other side of it, huh? if somebody—I mean, this is a part of America, the American experience too. If someone believes that God told them something, and they've got five hundred people who are willing to follow them to Utah, right? Well, they can do that. But we we yeah. invented more religions in our country. We invent religions yeah. the way. The way I don't know, religions are one of our our biggest products. Yeah, uh, yes, and that's fine, and that's fine. 
and that's fine. But they can't, they can't interfere with my worship or lack of worship. That's right. And, and those are those are the me. norms that I worry most about, which is the idea that we can all live together and that you do not have to be outraged and and and, and outlaw whatever it is about my community that you find so horrifying and vice versa. Listen, Leon, it was a joy. Thank you so much for enlightening my audience. And I hope to have you back soon. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Okay, good to see you. This has been The Re-Education with Eli Lake, a nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcast. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing.